we'll have our scripture reading now and we're turning this morning to John's Gospel and chapter 21, the last chapter of John's Gospel. We'll start reading at verse 1, John 21 verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, he'd removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they'd come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he'd said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly I say to you, When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you, and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning round, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, 
who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, uh, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but that if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is a disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Amen. So we're turning this morning to the 21st chapter of John's Gospel, the chapter we've just read together. And John's Gospel is unusual because it has two endings. John brings his Gospel to a conclusion in the verses just before those we read. Verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Where Jesus, uh, John writes, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So John is saying there that he's deliberately chosen certain things from the life of Jesus, what he did and what he said, and he's compiled them in his gospel, in his narrative, for this specific purpose, that in reading this account of the life of Jesus, we might believe that he is the Son of God, and with that faith we may be saved. And so John is saying what he's written to this point is sufficient for that purpose. But then, guided by the Holy Spirit, John has chosen to include one more scene in his drama. And we might say, why? What was his purpose in this? Well, notice what John says here. After these things, John showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. So, this appearance, this manifestation of Jesus to his disciples, had a particular form. Jesus was very deliberate in everything that he said and did on this occasion. It was all on purpose. Because Jesus was very shortly to leave his disciples and to ascend back to heaven. So this occasion will be one of their final memories of Jesus. We, of course, have never seen Jesus in the flesh. And that could make it difficult for us to think about him or to relate to him as we should. So John has left us with this final vivid cameo, this little sketch of a final tender moment that Jesus has with his disciples, which should shape how we think about Jesus and his care for us. And I believe that one of the things that John would have us to learn from this passage is that what we see Jesus doing for the disciples then, by that lakeside, he is still doing for us, his people, today. Well, what was Jesus doing then? 
And what is he doing for his people now? It struck me that this passage is a beautiful picture of the good shepherd at work. You know that earlier on in the John's Gospel, uh, Jesus described himself as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. He's done that now. He's laid down his life at the cross of Calvary. He's risen from the dead. He's defeated sin. He's victorious. But now we see him going about his work of shepherding his people in just the way that King David described the shepherd of Psalm 23. We see this in three particular ways in this passage. Remember that David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not lack for anything. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, provides for his people. That's what we see in verses 1 to 14 of this passage. Then David adds, He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And so, Jesus, the good shepherd, restores his people when they backslide and fall into sin. And that's what we see in verses 15 to 17 of this passage. <coughs> David also wrote, Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We say, don't we, forewarned is forearmed. In verses 18 to 19 of this passage, we see Jesus forewarning Peter about his death. So that he's armed, so that he's prepared to meet it, he's equipped, he's ready to stand firm. And so here we see Jesus, the good shepherd, preparing his people for death, preparing his people to glorify him in suffering. So, the theme for this morning is the Good Shepherd at work. And I want to take those three points that I just mentioned in turn as we work our way through the chapter. So, first of all, this Jesus, the Good Shepherd, provides for his people. We know how it is with many people that, uh, you know, it might be in the office or it might be. Um, in a, a workplace relationship, or it might be, you know, a, a, as good friends, um, we get along very well with people, you know, whilst they're ordinary folks like us. But when they're promoted, when they work their way up the ranks, they can often lose touch with the ordinary people, the ordinary folk below them. And we could easily make the mistake of, of thinking that way about the Lord Jesus. Yes, it's wonderful how he came to earth. He humbled himself. He was uh, born um, into a poor family. Uh, he, he lived that life as, a, uh, as, as an ordinary man, as one of us, mixing with the poor, with the outcast, having time for everyone. But sometimes Satan could put it into our hearts to think, well, now that Jesus has finished his work on the cross, now he's ascended to heaven, He's Lord of all. He rules the universe. Will he have time for my concerns, for my worries? Surely my day-to-day -day troubles, they're, 
too insignificant for him to notice. We can find ourselves thinking like that sometimes, can't we? As if the Lord, he doesn't have time for us anymore. The first section of this chapter proves that the truth is the complete opposite of what we might think. Here we see Jesus coming to his disciples in the ordinary trials of life, providing for them and drawing them to himself. And it's interesting, isn't it, that John takes the time to sketch the details of this scene. He doesn't just state the fact of it, that yes, Jesus cares for ordinary people. He, he shows us how. And so I think it's worth lingering over this scene for a moment, putting ourselves in this scene, so we can get the sense of, of just how the Lord Jesus draws himself to us, uh, draws us to himself. So this all happens a few weeks after the resurrection. The disciples have left Jerusalem now, where they first saw Jesus risen from the dead. They've made their way up north to Galilee, where Jesus told them to, uh, to wait for him. He was going to meet them at a certain mountain. And they're waiting for that day to come. Peter, very wisely, decides to keep himself busy. And he goes back to what he knows best and announces that he's off fishing. And several others decide to go with him. But what a disappointing night's work they have of it. They were at it, a cold lake, all night, and they catch absolutely nothing. And John is painting a very realistic picture of the Christian life for us here. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is Lord of all. He's defeated sin. That changes everything. But we still have to deal with living in a fallen world, with our fallen human natures. But Jesus doesn't leave us to do that on our own. But sometimes, perhaps often, we don't recognise when he's at work. So dawn is now breaking on the lake. And the fishermen are faced with going back empty-handed. And that's when they hear a voice from the shore. Lads, have you caught anything? And there's a figure they don't recognise. Perhaps it's Misty. He's a little way off. He's showing a very touching concern for their well-being. And then he says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. They were rather short with him in their response, weren't they? Have you caught anything? No. But something compels them to do as he says. And immediately they're glad that they did. A huge shoal of fish fills the net to breaking point, and yet it doesn't break. Something strange going on here, isn't there? And it's John, the Apostle John, who first recognises who that stranger on the shore must be. It's the Lord. It's Jesus. Because this was just what Jesus did at the beginning. 
when first he called these men from their fishing nets to follow him. Before that call, Jesus had done the same thing for them, filling their nets with a miraculous catch. It's John who has the insight that the man on the shore is Jesus, but it's Peter who is the man of action. He immediately plunges into that lake. And remember, it's early morning, so this lake will be freezing cold. He plunges into that lake to get to Jesus just as fast as he can, leaving the others behind to slowly drag in the huge catch of fish. And when they get to the shore, wet and tired but curious, they discover that Jesus already has a fire burning, he has bread baking, he has fish frying. Can you imagine a delicious smell? And Jesus invites them to add some of their own catch. And then he says, come and have breakfast. Breakfast by the lake. What an invitation. And yet, as we read this narrative, we, we sense a, a hesitation, a, a shyness. The disciples are, are holding back. They know that it's Jesus. They dare not ask who it is, knowing that it's the Lord. The same Jesus who they've loyally followed for three years. But they hold back. Can we really relate to him man to man as we did before? This is our Lord and God. Just return from defeating death and Satan and sin. Can we really sit round the fire at the lake shore in our wet clothes, eating breakfast with him and talk like we did before? And yes, look at verse 13. Jesus, their Lord and God, came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. Their Lord and their God serves them breakfast, which he cooked himself at the side of the lake. Would they ever forget that meal? They'd always remember Jesus as the one who'd found them empty-handed after that night of frustration, fruitless toil, who provided for them, who called them close, who warmed them, at the fire and fed them himself. And this is the story, not for so many believers. Is this your story too? Have you experienced Jesus, the Lord of glory, like this? Have you experienced the, the fruitlessness, the emptiness of life when Jesus is absent? You're labouring, you're toiling. You're giving life your everything, but you're coming back empty-handed. Well, have the humility to listen to Jesus. To do what he tells you, even when it seems strange. You know what the Lord asks us to do? For this, the, the, the fishermen on the lake, it was so simple. Throw the net over the other side of the boat. For us, again, it's so simple. We're to <coughs> seek the Lord. We're to come to him. Through his word and through prayer and through meeting with his people 
and through obedience to what he commands us. We're to come to him in faith. We're to ask him to show himself to us. And Jesus himself invites us to come near to him. He invites us to to come and to dine. What he offers is himself. Remember he said, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. Remember that he gave his life as a sacrifice for us. He gave his life to satisfy the demands that God through his law makes upon us. And as we come to Jesus empty-handed, we can take what Jesus has done for us. And we can trust that God will look upon the Lord Jesus and he will pardon us for all our wrongdoing. He will look at all that Jesus has done and he will be satisfied with that as if we had offered to God a life of perfect obedience. He invites us to come to him And to be satisfied to the depths of our soul with all his perfection. With all his obedience. As we look at our failures. As we look at our fruitlessness so often in our lives. As we look at our frustrations. We can remember that God doesn't see that. He sees his son with whom he's well pleased. Sat at his right hand having finished all the work that God has given him to do. And we can come And we can be satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, the good shepherd, provides for his people. The next thing we see of the good shepherd at work in this passage is Jesus, the good shepherd, restores his people when they backslide. In verses 15, and 17, 15 to 17 of this chapter, John is now zooming in on one of the perhaps many conversations that happened round the, the campfire that morning. Because Jesus, the good shepherd, must give his special attention to Peter. Why is that? Well, because Jesus must settle a question in Peter's mind. Perhaps a question that all the disciples had. And a question that we sometimes have of ourselves and and others today. And the question is this. If I have fallen, if I have committed some great sin, if I have turned away from the Lord, can I be restored again to usefulness? Or if a leader in Christ's church commits a grievous sin against him publicly, openly, can that person be restored to their position again? We know that we can be forgiven of our sin because Jesus said every sin will be forgiven. Every sin confessed can be cleansed and washed away. But can a person who has sinned be forgiven? Can they be restored to usefulness again? Can a person be restored to public office again? Can they once again lead the people of God when they have sinned? Well, here Jesus shows the answer to that question. By restoring Peter and recommissioning him for the great work of leading God's people. And this shows us how unlike us our Lord is. As Matthew Henry puts it, we might say, well I'll forgive the man, but I'll never trust him again. Here, 
Jesus not only forgives, but he entrusts Peter with his greatest treasure, his church, as he recommissions Peter for the work of shepherding his flock. Now, perhaps this question feels particularly relevant to you this morning. Maybe you're conscious of having a sinned against God. Maybe it was openly, publicly like Peter. Or perhaps it was in secret. Maybe you've confessed that sin. You know that you've been forgiven by the Lord. But you're wondering, will he have me back again into his service? Can I still be useful to him? And the answer is yes. Because Jesus not only forgives, he restores Jesus' power is such that he's able to take souls that have been ruined, utterly wrecked by sin, and to bring them back to full working condition. In fact, you might say it is his speciality to take the very worst and to restore them to make them the very best. Well, how does he do this? How does he do it with Peter? Well, I think there's something important to notice here, which is that as a good shepherd, Jesus had never forsaken his sheep, even for a moment. He was with Peter all the way through that dark valley of temptation. He went ahead of Peter. He was beside Peter when he fell into sin. And he was there in the aftermath to forgive and to restore. Just think about how it was with Peter. As the good shepherd, Jesus went ahead of him in his temptation. You remember the account, don't you? How Jesus warns Peter. Remember, Peter was a loyal disciple, and yet he was proud. He was the natural leader of the disciples. He was always the one to put himself forward, often the spokesman for the group. He was fiercely loyal to Jesus. And he loved the idea that he was the most loyal. Remember the night before he died, the Lord warned his disciples that they would all abandon him that night. But Peter had boasted, even if all these forsake you, I never will. And that was when Jesus warned Peter specifically, this very night... Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus warned Peter. But more than that, he prayed for Peter. Even in this proud state, Jesus loved Peter. And he said to Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned... Strengthen your brethren. Jesus was confident, you see, that Peter would endure this trial. But not because Peter was strong. Rather, because Jesus the Son had prayed for him. His eternal Father had given him what he asked for. And the Holy Spirit would see to it that Peter's faith would stand the test. So, Jesus, the good shepherd, had gone before Peter into that temptation. And then he was beside Peter in the moment of temptation and even at his fall. It all happened, didn't it, just as, Peter, as Jesus had warned. Three times after Jesus had been arrested, 
People had questioned Peter about his association with Jesus. And three times Peter had denied knowing Jesus. He even called down curses upon himself if he was lying. Which of course he was. And then the rooster crowed. And as it did so, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine what? Peter saw in that look Peter that look might have said I took you as my friend I healed your mother when she was sick I rescued you Peter when you were drowning in the lake I provided you Peter when you didn't have the money uh, to pay for the tax I taught you Peter I gave you power to work miracles I took you into my confidence I showed you my glory on the mountain Peter now I'm going to bear infinite torment I'm going to take your curse on the cross, Peter. And you say, you never knew me. You fling away my love to save your skin. You know, at heart, that's what our sin is. Sin is to despise the love of God that I might have my own way. It's to say no to Jesus and all his love and all that he has done for us in giving himself for us so that I can say yes to myself. Sin is personal. It's personal betrayal of Jesus. But that night, Peter came to see his sin for what it was. See, Jesus was there with Peter in his moment of temptation and at his fall. And that look from Jesus was, as it were, the shepherd's crook dragging back the sheep from the precipice. That look from Jesus touched Peter's conscience and it brought him to repentance. He came to see his sin as as it really was. To see it for the betrayal of Jesus that it was. That look of Jesus brought Peter to repentance. Remember the account. Peter rushed out and wept bitterly. And these were true tears. Peter was weeping tears of godly sorrow. It wasn't just a mere regret. Judas the traitor, he regretted what he'd done. He went and gave back the silver coins he'd been betrayed, uh, paid for betraying Jesus. But Judas' regret only drove him further from Jesus. He went and hanged himself. Peter's godly sorrow sent him back to Jesus. So the good shepherd had gone before Peter into his temptation, warning him, praying for him. He was beside Peter at his moment of temptation and fall. And now he's here in the aftermath, to bring Peter back into the fold. See, after he'd risen from the dead, Peter had a personal, a private meeting with Jesus. He met Peter alone before he appeared to the twelve. We're not told anything about this meeting other than that it happened. But I think we can deduce that it was Peter's opportunity to confess his sin, his betrayal of Jesus. And it was for Jesus to show Peter the wounds in his hands and in his side. 
and to assure Peter that they were for him, that he had borne that curse, that the price had been paid, that Peter's sin was forgiven, that Jesus had forgiven Peter because he had paid the penalty. And so now, having forgiven Peter previously, here by the lakeside, Jesus restores Peter. He draws from Peter renewed expressions of love. Three times Peter denied Jesus, and now three times Jesus puts the same question to Peter. Do you love me? And this is the real test of whether we're right with God through having our sins forgiven. Jesus said, the one who has been forgiven much will love much. But the one who's been forgiven will love little. And so we should each ask our own hearts this morning. Do I love Jesus? Do you know in your heart, in your experience, what sin is? That your sin is a personal betrayal of Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you? Do you know in your heart that your sin deserves eternal hell, but that Jesus suffered that in your place? Has it sunk deep into your heart that you could never merit a place in God's heaven, but that Jesus, the good shepherd, came from heaven to live out a life of perfect obedience for you and then to give himself for your sin. Peter had this deep inward sense that he was saved only because of what Jesus had suffered on the cross for him. And so he could reply, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know. This is the place of safety, you see. Peter won't boast any more in his love for Jesus. Rather, he will completely rely upon Jesus and what Jesus knows about him. And this is a place of strength, to depend completely upon what Jesus has done for me and will do for me. And to discard completely anything I might think about myself and what I might do for Jesus. And then Jesus shows Peter how to demonstrate his love. You notice each time that Peter affirmed his love for Jesus, Jesus replied in a similar way. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Christ's sheep are his people. And here you see Jesus committing the care of his flock, his people, to Peter. Peter is to feed and to tend both the lambs and the sheep. The young believers in Christ, those mature in Christ, just as Jesus had done for him and for the other disciples through these years of his ministry, now Peter is to do for Jesus and he's to do for others. You know, J.C. Ryle, who was a uh, one-time bishop of Liverpool, great evangelical uh, Christian in the Church of England, he wrote in one of his commentaries, the steady, patient, labouring effort to do good to Christ's sheep scattered throughout the world is the best evidence of being a true disciple. And so we see here Jesus, the good shepherd, restoring Peter 
from his backslidden state. He's been forgiven, he's been restored, and he's been recommissioned. He's been sent out to demonstrate his love for his Lord in feeding his Lord's flock. But then there's one final thing that we see in this chapter of Jesus, uh, the good shepherd at work. And it's this, the good shepherd equips his people to glorify him in suffering. Immediately after restoring and recommissioning Peter, Jesus shows that Peter should not expect that it will be an easy work or that he'll get earthly rewards for his work. Jesus says something to Peter that would be very uh, cryptic to us if we didn't have John's word of explanation. Jesus says to Peter, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, you dressed yourself, and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you, and carry you where you do not wish. And then John explains that Jesus spoke this to signify by what death Peter would glorify God. Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. He says that Peter will be old. He was going to have many years in Jesus' service. And sources suggest, uh, external to the Bible, that Peter was in his mid-sixties when he died. But Jesus also shows here that it wasn't going to be a natural death, a peaceful death. Rather, <coughs> Peter was going to die a martyr's death. And it's widely thought that Peter died by crucifixion. But the most important thing is this. By his death, Peter would glorify God. I mentioned earlier, didn't I, that we have the expression, forewarned is forearmed. If we know what's coming, we can prepare for it. Jesus doesn't want Peter to be surprised at the trial that is coming for him. He wants him to be prepared and the best way for him to prepare for suffering and for death is to know that there is a purpose in it. And it's the greatest purpose of all, which is to bring glory to God. And we might ask, well, how does a person bring glory to God in suffering and in death? Well, it's like this. It's by demonstrating that they treasure God above Anything the world has to offer. In suffering, a person can demonstrate that God is more valuable to them than anything else they might have. That's what Peter would do by his death. By patiently enduring suffering, he would demonstrate the living hope that he had because of Christ's resurrection from the dead. By not resisting the evildoers who would do this to him, he would show that he had certainty of an inheritance to come, that nobody and nothing could take from him, imperishable, undefiled, and which would never fade away. And by persevering, by keeping going through the trials that would come to him, Peter would show that he had a genuine faith in God that was more precious than gold. Through all of this, Peter had discovered very painfully that though he thought himself strong, he didn't have any ability in himself to endure suffering. 
As soon as he was faced with the prospect of arrest, Peter denied Jesus. He was not able of himself to lay down his life for Jesus like he had boasted that he would. Left to himself, he denied Jesus. But he had discovered that Jesus is a a tender and a gracious shepherd. Peter came to Jesus and experienced for himself the reality of Jesus' care, his provision, his restoration when Peter had sinned, his ability to equip and to strengthen his people in suffering to glorify him. And that was why Peter treasured Jesus. That was how Peter was made able to glorify God in his death. And so this, my friends, is the good shepherd at work. This is what he is doing right now for his people, for you here, for his people all over the world. He's providing for us. He's restoring us when we sin against him. He's equipping us to endure trial and temptation and suffering. And so my question for you this morning is, is Jesus your shepherd? Have you experienced Jesus' provision? Have you experienced him restoring you? Have you experienced Jesus strengthening you? If not, think of this. Where else could you find such a friend as Jesus has proven to be to his people? Where else could you find a friend like Jesus who will love you even as you're betraying him? Who would give his life to bear the curse that you deserve? Where else would you find a friend with the power to provide for you? The power to strengthen you in your time of weakness? Come to the good shepherd if you've not already come to him. But if you do belong to the good shepherd, be encouraged this morning. As you think on this little sketch of the good shepherd at work, or so many of us would answer Peter's, uh, Jesus' question to Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you, but oh for grace to love you more. To which Jesus would answer, well, come closer then. Everything that I did, I did it for you. Lean on me. Come to me, Jesus says, for all the grace that you need. I will strengthen you. I will equip you. I will provide for you. May the Lord bless us this morning.